So it is no secret that yesterday was one of the biggest days of the year. Certainly, uh, certainly the biggest holiday uh, in the U.S. calendar. In fact, I was talking to my parents about this. That I think what makes Christmas as a holiday so much more unique than all the other holidays is that there's a whole season around this holiday. It's, it's, the, it's like the whole December month is Christmas and lights are going off. And there's another thing that's interesting about this holiday is it's so big that you get almost two holidays, Christmas Eve and then Christmas. And some of your families might have a special Christmas Eve tradition that is unique from your Christmas Day tradition. At least in my family, we traditionally would open up a single Christmas present on Christmas Eve. That was our tradition. And then we have our Christmas. And one of the things um, about the fact that uh, Christmas is the biggest holiday is that there's, there's a real amazing blessing in all that. It's really quite amazing that a day that is traditionally, now I know it's been commercialized and all the rest, but still, Christmas has still the name of Christ in it. And you still can listen to positive, encouraging, family-friendly supposedly Christian, but uh, radio stations, and still, outside of Jingle Bells and other things, hear traditional Christian hymns during this holiday. In other words, that as much as Christmas has been commercialized and all of the snowmen and everything else and Santa Claus has largely in our culture replaced Jesus Christ, you still see the baby in the manger shining through. And to me... Uh, that is awesome, and that's something to be thankful for. To be thankful for that. This is the day that the whole world, at least the world of the West, recognizes and celebrates the day of our, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so on this day of Christmas that we all just went through, what do we do? Everyone has their own unique traditions, right? But something tells me that many of you who don't have the spirit of Scrooge Maybe some of you have that. That's why. But many of you probably had some wrapping paper, right? And probably gave some gifts. Because that's what we all do. We all give gifts. In fact, I see some of you married couples here. You might have even gave gifts to each other with your own money. Because that's just what we do. We give gifts. And then traditionally, the day after Christmas, which is today... When you haven't seen somebody and you kind of get to the small talk, right? You know, how was your Christmas? All of this kind of stuff. And especially if they're younger, we often ask, what gift did you give? And what gift did you get? And when we're asking about what gift did you get, we really don't want to hear about the candy cane or the obvious regifting gift. We're really looking at the actual good gift, right? What is that really good gift? That you liked. And this is kind of one of the fun things. I haven't done this yet, but this is one of the fun things I like about asking people about you know, how their Christmas was. I'm looking forward to asking Lucas, for example, what did he get? And what was his favorite gift? What was the gift that was most special to him? So the question is, transcending Christmas now, what is the greatest gift that you have received? Not just for Christmas, but period. What is the greatest gift that you ever received? And as you think about that, let me ask you this. Who gave you the greatest gift that you have received? And if you're thinking about 
your husband, your mom, your dad, or something else, might I suggest that maybe God could give a better gift than your husband, your dad, child, somebody else, right? So maybe we, when we zone into the actual proper best gift, was probably from God, not from man. But then, okay, now we've identified that God gave you the greatest gift that you have. The question is, what was the greatest gift that he gave you? What is it? Well, I want you to think about that, and hopefully we'll be able to answer that throughout the course of the sermon. Please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read verse 18 through 25. Some of that is going to be just for context. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They were not from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Father or the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So I want you to notice the contrast between verses 18 and 19 and verses 20 or verse 20. John says of them that these people who are not them are the Antichrist and they mark the end of this age and the dawn of the next one, the new age, the age to come. They are the ones who went out from us. They've abandoned the church, but it's not that we lost true members, but they were never truly of us. For if they were of us, they would never have left us in the first place. Kind of a mouthful. These people, the Antichrist, they've snuck in, pretenders, they've abandoned the church, only to reveal that they never really belonged in the church. And then, in verse 20, is that, but, but you. And what does he point to? What makes us different than them? What makes Christians who stay different than Christians who go? Does the text say that we worked a lot harder? That we were smarter, we were more diligent, we kept better watch over ourselves or over our neighbor. No. It doesn't say any of that. It doesn't, it doesn't actually point to anything about ourselves. But it says something that we have received, something that we have been given. It says in verse 20, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Now, the Holy One here is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And this knowledge that we received by the Holy Spirit is a benefit that we get with the gift, namely that of the Holy Spirit. And so, this is the decisive difference between believers and unbelievers. The decisive difference between a believer and an unbeliever isn't that the believer is simply a better person than the unbeliever. The difference is that the believer has the Holy Spirit. And the unbeliever doesn't. And the spirit is what makes the difference. And so I I think of a friend of mine 
who is an unbeliever, and they know my testimony. They know how I was radically transformed and changed. And they're religious, or somewhat religious, and they cannot figure out why, when they try to read the Quran and whatnot, that it just doesn't have the same power in their life that it had in my life. Because the Quran and the Bible and their mind, you know, two holy books, two ancient books, they both have holy before them, holy Quran, holy Bible, right? So they should both work. They can't figure out why the Quran is unable to transform their life like the Bible was able to transform my life, in other words. And the major difference between the Quran and the Bible is a couple. One, the Quran is false, the Bible is true, but there's something even more than that. It's namely that the Quran lacks the spirit. They're just words on a page. While the Bible was inspired by God, infused in God, and when it comes to you, it has the power of God. The problem with my friend is they have religion without a spirit. And I have Christianity with the Holy Spirit. So the question is, if the major difference between believers and false believers, or true religions and false religions is that we have the anointed one, that we have the Holy Spirit. And by the way, does anyone know what Christ means? The Christ is the anointed one. So we also are anointed ones, just like Christ is the anointed one, because we too share in that same spirit. But the major difference between true religion and false religion, between powerless religion and powerful religion, between true believers and false believers, is the spirit then it might be important that we know how we receive the Spirit, right? We want that. I don't want the false religion. I don't want the powerless religion. I don't want the religion on a page, but rather the religion that produces a relationship, that produces power and life change, and that is pleasing to God. God wants people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. You've got to have both. You can't get the Spirit without the truth, but you just don't want truth, because the Pharisees had a lot of truth. There's a lot of people who are dead in the pews of true churches that have a lot of truth, but they don't have any spirit and won't give them any benefit at all in the end. Because on that day, they will hear these words from Jesus Christ, Depart from me, you work of iniquity, for I never knew you. Even though they knew him. Because they knew true things about him. They didn't know him because they didn't have a spirit. But the question, once again, is how do we get the spirit? How do we get it? Now I want you to think back to the last time that you got sick. Or maybe somebody in your family got sick, right? Maybe you have kids or something, I don't know. And one of the kids gets sick. And the first thing you say is, at least the first thing I say is, where'd they get it from? You start doing a little bit of investigation. You know? Anybody in the church get sick? Anybody in the nursery? You know, small group? What's going on? Where did, the, where did this sickness come from? How did I get this thing? And we start doing some investigation. Where did it come from? So, We're asking the question of where did the Holy Spirit come from? Do we simply just get struck by the Spirit? It just hits us. We just walk out there and bam! The Spirit just hits us and we don't know where it came from or where it went. Or is there more known and predictable circumstances upon which we receive the Holy Spirit? Well, some might say, no, 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 actually the Spirit just strikes you like lightning. You're just walking out there and all of a sudden... Thunder clouds come out. They're like, what's going on there? Bam! Just get zapped. Is that how the Holy Spirit comes down? Well, one passage might suggest that. John chapter 3, verse 7 says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it? 
but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is. Everyone who's born of the Spirit. Pretty good. That certainly sounds like you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. It's just, bam, kind of like you got sick and who was sick around me? Can't find anybody? I don't know. I don't know where it came from. So does that text suggest that people just randomly receive the Spirit? Well, my first question is, is this really the experience of the saints? We have a room full of saints and a room full of different testimonies. And some of your testimonies go like this, that you never knew a day you did not know the Lord because you were blessed with Christian families. That's awesome. Praise the Lord. Don't take anything away from that. That is absolutely wonderful. What's gone there is that you got converted at such a young age, you don't remember being born again. So, unfortunately, we, we don't have enough information there because you simply don't remember what happened about how the Holy Spirit came upon you, right? You just remember that happening. But for those of us who were converted beyond an age that we don't remember, is that what happened, right? As we converted, was that our testimony? You know, we went before the pastor and said, what is your testimony? Well, I was walking down the street and bam, next thing I know, I received the Holy Spirit. I believe the truth of the gospel. And just, I'm sure somebody's testimony is like that. In fact, I know one person's testimony that's somewhat like that. His name is C.S. Lewis. But the vast majority of people, that is not the case. And even C.S. Lewis, he was already wrestling with the truth and all these things. And his testimony is he was wrestling with the truth. He was thinking about these things. And he went to the park. And next thing you know, he came back believing. Okay, that's his testimony. Again, he already had, he's kind of cheating there. He already had a lot of things going on. He just doesn't know how it is that he went from wrestling to believing. All of a sudden, he was wrestling, and he wasn't wrestling more, and next he was believing. But I would say the vast majority of us, that what's happened is our testimonies are rather familiar, and we have these familiar elements. Here's a couple. One, somebody preached the gospel to us. Somebody told us about the word of God. Two, we started feeling conviction about our sin. We started feeling bad about the things that we used to love. The things that we no longer, that we used to think were great, now all of a sudden look like terrible things that were dragging us to the pit of hell. Another common element is that we all eventually were led from that conviction and other things to repent of our sins. Namely, we were to turn away from our sins and turn to Christ. We believe in God. Oftentimes, there's a prayer, not always, but oftentimes there's a prayer and a crying out to God. Oh, call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. There's often a praying and calling out upon God. And then there's often a permanent life change. After those sequence of events of hearing the gospel, being under conviction, repenting of your sins, believing and trusting in Jesus Christ, sometimes crying out and calling out to God, then usually the person will say, and then I changed. And then I was completely different. And then my affections change and things I used to love. Now I hate things I used to hate. Now I love. Does this sound familiar? Anybody heard this? There's a guy, I told you about C.S. Lewis. There's a guy named Augustine that has a testimony very similar to that. He was under conviction. He hears the word of God. He eventually repents of his sins. He stops doing the things that he wanted to do. He was transformed and becomes the great Augustine of Hippo that we all know about. We all have heard these testimonies. They're very, very common. And they're awesome to hear about. They're common elements and what I'm suggesting is this doesn't sound random at all. It sounds like under certain known and predictable circumstances, people receive the Holy Spirit. Just like under certain known and predictable circumstances, people receive chicken pox. Right? Now, this is kind of a, 
dating some people, but has anyone ever heard of a chicken pox party? Even worse, has anyone ever participated in a chicken pox party or let your kids participate in one? This is something that people don't do anymore. And the people who uh, weren't around when people used to do this, it sounds like almost cruel and unusual that people were to do this. I participated in one of these wonderful parties. So I thought, here I was, going to go hang out with some person I didn't really know, but for whatever reason, they wanted me to go over to their house and hang out with them. It's going to be wonderful. And all of a sudden, I came back all itchy. So what people used to do is that somebody would get chicken pox out there, and the parents would tell each other that so-and-so got chicken pox, and then they would throw a party over this person's house for the poor kids who didn't know any better to hang out with this kid, and then they would all get chicken pox and scratch and get itchy and terrible. And this was what we used to do before we had vaccinations. But everyone born, like, not back then, now just gets vaccinated and don't have to go through any of this misery and deception and all this other stuff. The point is that we know how people get chicken pox. And the reason chicken pox was a thing, chicken pox party was a thing, is because it worked. Guy got chicken pox, send all the kids, everybody comes back with chicken pox. Under certain known... In predictable circumstances, you knew what was going to happen when so-and-so went to the chickenpox party. By the way, the reason they did this was not to be cruel. It was because chickenpox, as a, getting as a child, wasn't so severe. You got it as an adult and didn't get it as a child very severe. It was actually a, an act of kindness to all who participated in this. But it certainly didn't feel like that. And you're all itchy and you've been tricked. But anyways, so the thing is, what we're going to look at is, are there certain known and predictable circumstances that people receive the Holy Spirit? And so let's look at God's word and consider this. If you have a Bible, maybe you can turn to Ephesians 1.13. I'm going to list several passages. Uh, you can go there if you like, or you can just read them off, or you can ask me later for these scriptures. So here's one of them, Ephesians 1.13. This one's really good, so you might want to plant there. Ephesians 1.13. In him, that's in Christ, you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, I want you to notice the order very carefully. Ephesians 1.13. In him, that refers to Christ, you, the believer. Also, when you heard the word of truth, first element, the gospel of your salvation, identifying what's the word. You heard the gospel, the word of truth. And you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, first you heard, then you believed, then you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then it describes the Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He is the down payment, he's the guarantee that we will receive future salvation in Christ. In union with Christ, when we heard the gospel, believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We have the known elements right there. Galatians 3.14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. I'll read that again. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So in Christ Jesus, we receive the blessing of Abraham. What's the blessing of Abraham? And you, all the nations, will be blessed, and that you and your seed will inherit the whole earth. That's what he says. You can see that in Romans chapter 3. So he promised that Abraham was going to be the heir of the whole world, Abraham and his seed. So we, through Christ, 
receive that blessing that we become children of Abraham. There's that song that we sing, Father Abraham had many sons, right? How do you become a son of Abraham? Not by getting circumcised and going to Israel. Bad idea. Don't do that. Read Galatians. Bad idea. Don't do that. The way that we become sons of Abraham is by believing in Jesus, and by believing in Jesus, we become children of Abraham. Okay? Gentiles. So that we, Gentiles, might receive the promised spirit. What have we talking about? How we receive the spirit? We receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, there's another passage of the Bible. It says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You can't believe what you do not know. So you must first hear, then you believe, then through faith you receive the promised spirit. It's the same thing we saw in Ephesians 1.13. Here's another passage, Acts 2.37. Now that when they heard this, they went out. This is the, this is the, um, the Jews at Pentecost. They hear the gospel message. This is Peter's first gospel sermon. Now when they heard this, the audience, they were cut to the heart. Conviction. Remember that? We said that was normally something that was surrounding conversion and testimony and receiving the Holy Spirit. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What shall we do? We're cut in the heart. We're convicted. We heard the word of God. We heard the word of God. We're convicted. What shall we do? Repent. Turn away from your sin. The other side of repentance is believe. Repent. Believe. And you will receive forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. One more passage. Galatians 3, 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? It's a rhetorical question. Two, two options here. There's only two options. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Did you refuse to eat bacon? And because you refused to eat bacon, you received the Spirit. Did you get circumcised? And because you were circumcised, you received the Spirit. Did you follow Torah? Did you follow the Sabbath? Did you do something like this and receive the Spirit? Or did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith? Rhetorical question. The answer is obviously that you received the Spirit by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplied the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed in God and was counted to him as righteousness, know then that as those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In other words, how do you receive the Spirit? Not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. So this brings us back. These scriptures are pretty clear. To receive the Spirit, one must, one, hear the Word of God. Two, they must believe it. Three, they must repent of their sins. And then they will be sealed by the Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of their inheritance. Once they have done this, once they've heard the Word of God, they've been under conviction, they repent of their sins, they believe in it, they receive that Spirit, and that Spirit now guarantees to them that they are a child of God and that there's a full inheritance on the way. Something awesome to think about. If you have the Spirit right now, if you can see that the Spirit is within you, then you know, I have a place there. I have a place in the eternal kingdom with God forever. The, the spiritual background of what's going on here is spelled out in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 
Here's what it says there. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So as a person repents, a person believes, then the Holy Spirit takes them and baptizes them. The word baptized means to dip or to plunge. That's what it means. Okay, that's, that's the definition. It means to dip or to plunge. The Holy Spirit takes you and plunges you or dips you into the body of Christ. And as you are dipped and plunged into the body of Christ, then you are made to drink of the one spirit. That is the spirit coming into you and sealing you so that you have the Holy Spirit. This is how we receive the Holy Spirit. There is no other way to receive the Holy Spirit. This is the only way. And so what this means is that Jesus is the only way. Because the only way you get the Spirit is by getting in Jesus. The only way you get in Jesus is by believing in Jesus. This is called the exclusivity of Christ. There is no other way of salvation outside of union with Christ. There is no other way of salvation without receiving the Spirit of Christ. There are not two different ways of salvation. There's only one way of salvation. That's why John chapter 3, verse 3, that says, Truly, truly, I say to you, no one can be born. Uh, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God is no different than John 20, verse 31. It says, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. In other words, the stipulation that unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God, is no different than John's theme statement of why he wrote the book, namely that you believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. To believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name is... To be in Christ and to receive the Holy Spirit and to be born again. Life is found in Christ alone. We gain that life by being united to Christ through faith. And after being united to Christ, we drink of the Spirit, who is the guarantee of our salvation. All of this shows us that outside of Christ, there is no salvation. And outside of Christ, we are simply doomed. And that is a very difficult thing for many people to swallow in this day and age of pluralism, right? There's so many different religions. We may have unbelieving friends that are nice. We may have known from college Hindus, Muslims, right? We have a whole bunch of these other people that seem like Catholics, whatever, Jews. They seem like nice people, so surely God will let them in, right? Well, the problem with this ideology is the simple fact that God's not going to let you in because you're nice, See, if God doesn't let you in because you're nice, why is he going to let your nice neighbor in because they're nice? You didn't get in because you're nice. They won't get in because they are nice. Being nice is not the requirement of salvation. Being united to Christ is the requirement of salvation. This is exactly what John talks about in the latter part of our passage. Look at verse 22 and 23 of 1 John. 1 John 2, 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son, no one denies. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. See that? No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You can't have one or the other. You can't just believe in God the Father and reject His Son. And if you tried, you can't just believe in the Son and reject the Father. Most people don't try that, though. Most people try... Muslims, as an example, try to take the Father and kick out the Son. Mormons are another example. They try to take the Father and kick out the Son. Almost every heresy 
a heretical group tries to do this. They try to keep the father and kick out the son. But this is unacceptable. If you deny the son, you cannot have the father either. And in fact, the Bible would describe someone like this. I had a conversation with two very, very nice LDS missionary ladies. They were very, they were very lovely. I only wish salvation to them. I, their religion is quite different than ours. It's a totally foreign religion. But I don't wish damnation upon anyone. They have kind of a universalist religion. And that appeals to me from the flesh. I wish everybody were to be saved. But the fact of the matter is those very nice uh, LDS ladies, well, apply this verse to them. They're liars. They deny that Jesus is the Christ. This makes them antichrist. They don't have the Father. And they're condemned. That's just the way it is. And that's why we evangelize them. That's why we tell them the truth. That's why we pray for their salvation and try to convince them to see the error of their ways. This harsh and hard teaching is taught directly from the mouth of our Lord Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 6, it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. And so what I would say is, instead of feeling like this is restrictive... We should be thankful to God that there's a single way at all. We don't deserve any way. But this is the way. This is the truth. This is the life. And the fact of the matter is, the reason why people reject this way and this truth and this life is because they want a false God and they don't want to come to the true God. They're running from the true God. When you present people with the truth of the gospel, remember, it's not just you presenting the truth and your fallible arguments. It's the word of God and the Holy Spirit coming with you to convict this person and to bring them to the truth. So they reject the truth. They're not rejecting your words. They're rejecting God's words. And they're ultimately rejecting him. People will always be more attracted to a false religion than a true religion. Because a false religion doesn't have God behind it. A true religion does. This is the truth. This is the only true religion. This is the only true way. And Jesus is that way to the Father. Without him, we have no way to get there. This means... That there are many, many people on the path of damnation. If there's only one way, there's a bunch of false ways, right? People say there's that analogy that there's all these different paths to the same place on the top of the mountain. Right? People say give that image of a religion. That all these different paths that lead up to uh, the same mountain, ultimately they all paths leave home. Well, that is not found in the Bible. This is what the Bible says about all those many paths. It says this in Matthew chapter 7. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter into it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So, while false religion in the world will tell you that all paths lead to God, the Bible says all those many paths except one lead to hell. You believe in the Bible? Or you can believe your own fallible thinking about the matter? I suggest... You trust in the word of God. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but its way is the end leads to death. There's a way that seems right to man. That seems right to me, right? Spirit prison seems right to me. God will be forgiving and merciful seems right to me. But God explicitly says, there's only one path. There's only one way to be saved. Again, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. This is why it's absolutely essential that we share the gospel. Your unbelieving neighbor. So many. I hear there's so many, even from Bible-believing people. People will say, I know this person is saved. How do you know they're saved? They're great people. That doesn't tell you anything. Now, certainly if they were terrible people, that might be very suggestive, right? 
I agree with you on that. If they're horrible people, the person probably isn't saved. True. But if they're nice people, that doesn't tell you anything. We actually need to go and to evangelize people and to share the gospel with those people and to pray for these people and to see them saved. Only Christ is salvation found and only in him can we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, so far we have looked at I'm almost done here. So far we looked at how we receive the Holy Spirit by hearing the word of God, by being convicted, by believing, by repenting, and we're sealed with the spirit of promise. And we looked at the exclusivity of Christ that salvation is found in him and him alone. Now let's finish our final point with the benefits of the Holy Spirit. That benefits of what we've received by receiving that Holy Spirit. That's the decisive difference between false religion and true religion, between a false believer and a true believer. You see that in verse 21. 1 John 2.21. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And then jumping down to verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So the benefit of the Holy Spirit is twofold, at least described in this passage. Number one, it's salvation. And two, it's preservation. We see salvation described in verse 25. God has promised to give us eternal life if we are in his Son. How do we become his Son? I'm glad you asked. John 1.12 says, To all who receive him, who believe in his name. To receive Christ is to believe in his name. To trust in him. To pin of your sons. All who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then now as sons, who have the right to become his children... In the words of Galatians 4, 6, it says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Receive, believe, become a son. God sends his spirit of his son into your heart, and it cries, Abba, Father. This is the assurance of the believer. They have the Holy Spirit and them crying out to God, Abba, Father. They have new loves, new affections, new desires for God that testifies to them that they are children. And we, if we're children... We know that we receive eternal life. We know that God is not going to send his child to hell. Now, some people have asked that. Is God really going to send his children to hell? And they've suggested this is universalism, right? Everyone's God's children, right? Well, no. In a certain limited sense that God has created everyone's child, but not in a specific sense. God does not send his children to hell. God sends the devil's children to hell. The question is how you can become from the devil's child to God's child. And the answer is, by receiving and believing in him. And this is his promise to us. Eternal life. The other benefit of the Holy Spirit's preservation. And we see that in verse 21. I write to you. Not because you do not know the truth. But because you know it. And because there is no lie of the truth. The Holy Spirit is our guide. as our teacher. The Holy Spirit is the one who preserves us. And teaches us. And keeps us knowing the truth. The reason we came to know the truth in the first place. Is because. As I said. As we, the word of God has been preached. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of that. And draws you and brings you under conviction so that you could know the truth in the first place. How could you know that? Because of your teacher, the Holy Spirit. How can you not be persuaded by every wind of doctrine, by every cult, by every Jehovah Witness, by every person out there on the internet trying to steal your mind, trying to get you to believe heretical things? How, do you, how can you guard yourself against that? Do you have to be the smartest person in the room? No. In fact, oftentimes the heretic's the smartest person in the room. How? Because you have the teacher. You have the preserver. The Holy Spirit abides in you and keeps you knowing the truth. Thank God for his Holy Spirit. I began this sermon by asking 
what is the greatest gift and who has given it to you? I hope you know now what the greatest gift is. The greatest gift is the Holy Spirit. It's been given to us by God. Now, some might be saying, no, the greatest gift is eternal life. Well, that's not quite, they're kind of the same thing. You can't have eternal life without receiving the Spirit. You receive the Spirit, and He's the promise and guarantee of eternal life. So my prayer for you is that you have received the Holy Spirit. That you can look in your own heart, and that your own spirit testifies with the Holy Spirit that you are a child of God. That is your assurance. Not the fact that everyone thinks you're a Christian. Not the fact that you think you're a Christian. It's the Holy Spirit and your spirit confirming that you are a Christian. And if you don't have that confirmation, you can come talk to me. But more importantly, you need to go talk to God and cry out to Him until you get that confirmation. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit. This gift of all gifts. We're so appreciative of that Spirit, Lord. We know that apart from you, we can do nothing. That we need the Spirit to empower our lives, to conquer sin, to avoid heresy. And we know that this is ultimately our golden ticket. This is ultimately our seal, our promise from you, that we will ultimately dwell with you forever. This is the gift of all gifts, Lord. This is a gift that we often neglect. We often look at our life circumstances and think about all the things we wish we had or things that we wish were not here, but we ignore the fact that we have the greatest gift of all, the Holy Spirit. We thank you so much. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.